Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Waikai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, uh, any questions you may have, any comments, concerns, anything, even if uh, there's something you need to clarify, um, uh, you need clarity on from what's being said up here. I know from last Sunday's text and sermon, there were a few questions uh, that we discussed at staff meeting and portions uh, of the text that I think I could have made it a little bit more clear. And so please uh, do not hesitate to come and speak with me, even if it's as simple as saying, I still do not understand what this part of the text means. Can you please explain that more to me? Uh, you can always come up and speak with uh, me after service is over or actually any one of the other elders. You know, understanding uh, uh, the Word of God is so important and I think uh, misunderstanding can actually uh, be quite harmful. So please uh, make use of that time. Now, with that being said, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 22 and verse 1. As we continue our study through Luke, Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13 is our passage this morning. And that passage can be found on page 881 if you are using a church Bible. Page 881, Luke chapter 22 and verse 1. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, that we can uh, worship so freely together as a church family. And as we come to your word now, um, we ask that you would impress your truth deep into each one of our hearts, that we might come to know you uh, and come to know you more and more. By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit, would you bring us each near to you and help us to understand the things you have for us here with clarity, accuracy, and power. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have been in the last week of Jesus' life before the cross since chapter 19 of Luke, which we began about three months ago. And Luke and the other gospel writers, they, they proportionally uh, devote so much of their text to this final week before the crucifixion. Chapters and chapters are given to what occur in a span of mere days. And understandably so, as this is the most important week of all history until Jesus' return. But even within this week, there's another shift that we are entering into today with this passage before us. Uh, this begins what is typically called the passion narrative. And that word passion is derived from a Latin word which means suffering or to suffer. We are entering into the suffering of Jesus. Now, in one sense, from the incarnation onward, Jesus had already entered into a time of suffering. I mean, simply by being born into a manger as a human baby, a deity experiencing what deity never really should is suffering. And so Jesus has suffered tremendously prior to this week. But it is in another sense that this is where the culmination of that pain truly begins where the Son of God will actually experience death. And as this passion narrative opens up, we're going to look at two things primarily in this passage. The first, we will see uh, evil characters at their worst and layers of them in a scheming, uh, satanic providence, so to speak, who feel that they really hold Jesus' destiny within their hateful hands. And secondly, we find the one who is ultimately in control, even when it seems that he is not in control. And so evil characters who think they are in power versus the one who is actually in power. We begin in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. 
Uh, here again, we have the evil forces scheming and, and layers of it, the first layer of which is where you'd least expect it. You see the murderous intentions of very religious people uh, during perhaps the most holy time of the year. The spiritual leadership of the nation trying to figure out how to kill Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world during the ceremony that celebrates a lamb protecting God's people in the Passover. Now, we are uh, almost used to this, that the spiritual leadership is wicked and so used to it that it fails to shock us. But can you imagine if you found out that during one of our uh, elder meetings at Christmas time or at Easter time, can you imagine if you found out that the majority of our elder meeting was spent in trying to plan for a murder? I mean, I hope that that would shock you, that you wouldn't think that that was par for the course. I mean, what if you found out that our discussion consisted of a, of a murder scheme, that this person is our biggest naysayer and stands for things that we stand against, and this one is gaining influence and power and is stealing the people away from our own influence and power? And so I think we're all in agreement that the best thing we could do and should do is kill this person. And so our agenda for the rest of the meeting today is going to be devoted to how. How do we do it? How can we kill in such a way so that there isn't much blowback? I mean, would you still want to be part of this church? You know, we've seen a lot of scandals uh, across religious establishments in, in all kinds of nefarious ways, uh, financial scandals, lack of integrity, uh, cover-ups of crimes uh, with a sexual nature, infidelity, even within our denomination. All of it very evil. But I, I don't think I can remember having heard of any that involves a coordinated plan for murder. And this is what is happening here, and we ought to be taken aback by it that the people responsible for the killing of Jesus Christ are the very ones who should have had their arms open to him, are the very ones who were supposed to act as God's own representatives. And they do it during the very season of their own celebration of God's deliverance, a deliverance only made possible because of the blood of the Passover lamb. And we'll look over more at the Passover in the next passage, but I want to focus our attention here on these culprits, what would lead them to this point? You know, this is a, uh, the first time that anyone tried to kill Jesus in Luke was back in Luke chapter 4, and, uh, verse, uh, verses 28 and 29, where they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff because they didn't like what he was preaching. The, the scribes and the Pharisees after that, they've been involved in laying trap after trap for Jesus so that they might discredit him before the people that he was winning to himself. Why? Because at the end of the day, the religious leadership wanted power and authority and sway over the people. They wanted the people's affections and approval, and Jesus was undercutting their power and influence and uncovering that their hearts, their own hearts, were not right with God. But rather than have that melt them into repentance, they doubled down on their attacks upon Jesus. They want the praise of the people, and they don't want people praising Jesus. Now, one lesson for us is just because someone has a spiritual title and stands as a religious figure doesn't necessarily mean that there is any real spiritual vitality at all. You know, it's sad, but it's true that there are many wolves who disguise themselves as sheep. Uh, even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Just because someone has a spiritual title affixed to their name doesn't mean that there's real spiritual life there at all. Now, I don't mean that you should distrust every single religious figure and have an unhealthy bend and bias against them. But I definitely do mean that you should test things and let trust be earned over time by which character can be ascertained. We mustn't be shocked or think that the gospel is no longer true 
as heartbreaking as it can be when we find that spiritual figures here and there are found in scandal. They've been found in scandal since the beginning of time. It happened then, and it still occurs today, sadly, that there will be many who enter into ministry for the glory of themselves rather than the glory of God. And so the religious head honchos here, they're planning for murder, and we get further insight into their evil because what is it that is the only thing that's stopping them? It says they're afraid of the people. We are afraid of the people who like Jesus. I mean, this fleshes out the portrait of their wickedness. They care more about what people think than what, uh, than what God thinks. We want to kill Jesus, and the only speed bump in our hearts is not that thou shall not kill, thou shall not murder, but that the people, they're not going to like us if we do it. The people we long for their approval, they're going to turn on us. Our poll numbers are going to drop. We want to be liked. It's very human. We want to be fawned over. That's why we say such long, extravagant prayers so that people can bravo us and wear such long, extravagant robes for that distinction. We love the attention of people. And we know that that's not just a first century thing. It has spread multiple times over in every era, but especially in ours. It's a human thing. We just want people to like us. And often to the point that people's opinions of us mean everything to us, so much so that we live our lives in a kind of slavery to them. I feel, by contrast, every strong leader in history has not been enslaved like this, but their true conviction is unaltered by people's opinions. But here it is that this is bleak. It's bleak. We have spiritual leaders who don't care about what God thinks and who are ruled by the people who want to kill Jesus because Jesus is taking their following away from them. And so again, this first layer of evil, religious powerhouse people scheming murder during the most holy of seasons, really with a dilemma on their hands. We want to kill them, but we can't do it because of the crowds. But we also can't do nothing because the people like him more than us. That's why we want to kill them. This is where we're at. And so they begin, seem to be stuck. But we continue in verse 3 and see two more layers of evil uh, at the most convenient time for them. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. Uh, here we have, uh, joining the religious authorities, uh, accompanying them, two further layers of wickedness. One, uh, Jesus' own disciple. And not just a follower of him in the crowd, but one who was of the number of the 12. And two, we have Satan himself joining the team. And so together, people in high power, scheming, now they have an insider agreeing to betray Jesus. And in addition to that, this supernatural being uh, backing and leading uh, in the devil himself. All of which seems to fall together perfectly and conveniently in what one commentator calls a bit of satanic providence. If the dilemma of the chief priests and the officers is not should we commit the murder, because that's already a given, we want to, but how? How do we do it so we don't upset the people and start a riot and, and have them rebel against us? How do we get Jesus alone to make our move on him? It's as if mid-brainstorming session, Luke shows to us, Judas walks right into that meeting at the perfect time. I got an offer for you guys. I don't know if you guys are interested. I'm one of the inner circle who knows the ins and the outs of Jesus' schedule, and I know when he will be around a lot of people, and I know where he sleeps at night and when he's found alone. I just want some money. 
And other accounts tell us that all it took was 30 silver coins, which in Exodus 21, 32 is about the price of one slave. Now, why? Why would Judas do this? I mean, Judas has been with Jesus for three years. He's seen with his own eyes uh, the sick being healed, paralytic now walking, a leper cleansed, not by Jesus yelling at him from afar, by Jesus touching him, the blind made to see, the dead raised, uh, he's eaten food that was multiplied. Uh, he's been within mere feet of Jesus' own lips as he proclaimed powerfully the kingdom of God. I mean, Judas has seen every wonder and has heard just about every sermon that Jesus had ever preached. He still doesn't believe. You know, a lot of people uh, claim that if, if I were able to witness what these people in the first century supposedly witnessed, I would be a believer, no doubt. And I think that they perhaps give themselves a little bit too much credit that they would look at objective truth staring at them in the face and be capable of drawing the right conclusions. Judas is here witnessing everything, and he still remains in unbelief. And so we have here in this heartbreaking phrase, one who was of the number of the 12. Here we have Judas ready to sell Jesus out for about four months of a laborer's wages. Why? You know, Luke doesn't delve into it as much as the other writers do, but um, Luke is explicit that they agreed to give him money, which means that Judas wanted and asked for it because somehow at this point, money means more to him than Jesus. Now, that may still not make sense to some of us here. Is it just a simple love of money that causes this kind of wretched betrayal? I'm sure that many of us in this room have been betrayed by people close to us in varying intensities, and uh, here it's actually a lot different. It's actually a lot different. Here we have the Son of God, perfect and sinless humanity. He's done literally everything to prove himself. He's done everything to authenticate himself with power, and not just power, but also compassion and mercy. I mean, even the furthest, most broken person could find a home with him. Even little children, little ones, they run up to him because they feel so comfortable with him. This is Jesus who knew every disciple's shortcoming and still chose him anyway. I mean, Peter's about to abandon him, deny him. The rest of the disciples will scatter. Judas betray him. And yet Jesus still, in these very same night, will wash all of their filthy feet in the posture of the lowest servant. Uh, this kind of betrayal is not like anything that we have ever experienced. I mean, there's literally no betrayal like the betrayal of Judas outside of Adam and Eve's betrayal in that perfect Garden of Eden where they walk with God and enjoy his character and his glory firsthand. There's no betrayal as wretched as these. And so is it the simple love of 30 silver coins that causes this kind of wickedness? I don't think so. Any more than that first betrayal of Adam and Eve was simply about forbidden fruit. What we saw in the garden... When humanity fell away, is humanity being tempted to turn away from God so that they might be their own God? While Adam and Eve sinless, uh, they enjoyed the presence of the Father, their Creator, and the Lord, and daily they were with each other in the perfect environment. They were tempted with this allure from the crafty serpent that you know what? The God who made you, designed you, created you to find your highest joy in Him. That because of fruit from one forbidden tree, I mean, never mind the garden full of others, but because God is not giving to you what you find pleasing in your eyes, then he must not be good. And you have to take matters into your own hands and live for your own desires rather than his. You can't trust him any longer. Was that fall really about a piece of fruit? 
I mean, yes and no, but, but it's so much deeper than that. They failed to trust the one who had already proven himself trustworthy. They wanted life outside of his lordship and under their own lordship, and so they believed the devil rather than their God. Now here we come to Judas, enamored with Jesus like many people were, and I think that that was genuine. I mean, Judas was all in, and he was so trusted that the disciples actually made him a kind of treasure. He was the last person that anyone would have ever guessed to be untrustworthy. I mean, Judas himself was of the group that went out in Luke 9, verses 1 and 2, to drive out demons, to cure diseases, to preach the kingdom of God, heal the sick. I mean, Judas was neck deep into ministry. And so Judas was thoroughly enamored with Jesus' mighty works. So were many others. But as time went on, I think that while Judas was enamored by these mighty works, Jesus was not so, Judas was not so much a fan of Jesus' mighty word. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, Luke 6.20. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I mean, who wants to be poor and hungry and weeping like Jesus had been poor, hungry, and weeping in this life? This isn't what I signed up for. And in this last week uh, of Jesus' life where he rides into Jerusalem on this royal colt, many are thinking, you know what? Finally, finally the moment we've all been waiting for. And they're looking at the temple from afar. It's covering gold. It's sparkling in the sun. The royal city of Jerusalem is ahead. Jesus is riding in on this donkey like King David would ride in on a donkey. This is the moment I've been waiting for. This Messiah is going to rule and reign. And as one of his earliest adopters, I mean, I have the most equity in this company. I'm going to be rich and powerful and sit on a throne next to his. I mean, his will be bigger, of course, but I'll get my little one. This is a victory of victories. This is the best decision I have made. And then Jesus says, don't be impressed with that temple. It's all coming down. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Those are the last two sermons in Luke. A lot of suffering. Things are going to be bad before they get good, but then the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. Stay awake. Be on guard. I didn't sign up for this. This is not the Messiah I want to follow. I get it. You're powerful. I've seen these things with my own eyes that are altogether wonderful, but if this is the end of what you're trying to lead me, I don't want any part of it. You know, people can believe in the power of God without wanting the ends for which that power is displayed. And I really believe here that Judas is cutting his losses. Three wasted years and all of this miraculous power and charisma and leadership, I left all to follow you. I'm just not getting the returns I want on the investment of my time. We've seen many come through the church do the same thing. I'm really interested in Jesus if I can get this and this and this out of it. And as time goes on, this isn't really what I signed up for. Is Judas's betrayal about 30 silver coins? I mean, yes and no. His heart has always been about more money. John tells us in John 12, 4 through 6, that this whole time he's been skimming off the top as a treasurer. Why does he want more money? Because he pockets some for his own. Judas was, in fact, mad when Mary anointed Jesus with this valuable ointment Shouldn't we have not poured that out on you and put that into the account to feed the poor? I mean, Judas wasn't really about that. He just wanted that money to be in his pocket. Is Judas's betrayal about silver coins? Yes and no, but, but it's more about what those coins represent. This money is going to give to me what Jesus isn't giving to me. This cash is going to make my life fuller and more complete than Jesus has. 
Those 30 silver coins become in that moment shinier in his eyes than the Son of God himself. This money can and will satisfy me more than Jesus ever could. That's idolatry. It's, it's worship. And it's very powerful. And it can drive us to do all sorts of different things. You know, the chief priests and the officers, they're similar but different. They love money too. But more than that, they love the fawning attention of the people. Oh, you're so holy, chief priest. Oh, your prayer was so beautiful. Oh, would you please give to me your wisdom on this and that. You're such a godly leader. Can you control my life? And Jesus was threatening that little kingdom that they had built up on the sand. Jesus isn't applauding us. He's not fawning over us. He rebukes us. And publicly, we got to kill him. We got to kill him because he's taking what's precious from us. Judas, following Jesus, not for Jesus, but for what Jesus can do for my bottom line. Can Jesus deliver to me what I always have had to deal with from my heart? He never really trusted Jesus to begin with. Judas only trusted in Jesus to give him what he was already worshiping, which was more cash. When we worship and trust in something else other than God, we will trade God for more of it in a second, even just 30 pieces of it. Now, this is something we really have to think on. A lot of times, people will be interested in Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of what Jesus can give to me. If I love for money, can the power of Jesus be harnessed to get me more? If I live, live for clout, can the Messiah get me more? What do these people have? They have another God that they refuse to cast down before the true God. Is this about 30 silver coins? Yes and no. It's much deeper than that. It is for Judas that the love of money, the kind of love that can be the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6.10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's a commentary on Judas's life and many others. I love this more than I love him, and I will trade him for more of this. Now, Luke says explicitly here that Satan entered into Judas. I'm not entirely sure what that means and what that looks like, nor does Luke offer us any more words uh, than this by way of explanation. Uh, But we can see almost immediately that this entering into Judas is not like the demon possession we've seen earlier in Luke, where a naked guy at the tombs cuts himself and yells and breaks chains, or or the little boy who throws himself into the fire, uh, who seem to take these kinds of actions against their own will. Now, Judas is not against his will, nor is his head spinning in 360s and foaming at the mouth, even though this is not just a demon, but the devil himself. It doesn't look like a typical demon possession that we've witnessed in the Gospels. But there's something about the progress of Judas's sin of greed, this advancement of Judas's belief that this cold, hard cash can give to me what Jesus never could that the devil seizes upon. Judas is not some innocent bystander, uh, bystander being held against his will to betray Jesus. No, the devil is entering into him by the door of his own will and strengthening those sinful passions so that they might progress to their own ends. 
I don't know exactly how Satan enters into Judas except what we have in this text and others like them where Judas's inordinate love of money and his misvaluing of Jesus is used to destroy Jesus so that Judas might have 30 silver coins instead, which is the most satanic thing ever coming from one of the original 12 disciples. This is not a demon possession against Judas's will but an influence in concert with that will. Now, now, before we move on, I want to be clear. The main message here is not money bad, God good. No, no, no. money is just a medium. It's an essential part of human existence. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, and there's not even anything wrong inherently with trying to earn more of it. It's the love. It's the trust in it that's deadly. That this one thing, if I can hit this benchmark, then my life will be so much better. If I can just get to this point, I'll have what God can never give me. And this, this is the nature of all idolatry. Idolatry is always a worship issue, a trust issue, and this is where the battle lay within the valuation system of the heart. Now, we can know our hearts as well. I think a lot easier than we often confess. I mean, we just have to stop and think, uh, what do we think about when we're not thinking about anything at all? What do we constantly fantasize about? What are some of the things that we just simply cannot imagine life without? What are some of the things, good and bad, that come between our relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you think Adam and Eve's sin was about fruit? You know, Satan didn't tempt them. I'm tempting you to murder your wife, Adam. No, he used something that looked good. You think Judas's wretchedness is about 30 pieces of silver? No. He was tempted by something that appeared to be better than God. Fruit is not evil. Money is not evil. Where Judas fell is that within his own heart, there's only room for one Lord. And that leaves no room for Jesus. And we have to constantly be assessing our own hearts if there's something we hold of precious value and trust in more than we do him. It could be anything. And I think we already know what some of these things are. But back to the main point. Jesus in this narrative is really starting to look pretty powerless. I mean, the authorities, the people in high power, they're scheming for his murder. An insider just offered his help to betray and solve their only dilemma, and now there's this supernatural backing and leading in the devil himself. All of this is arrayed against Jesus for his death, and they seem to be in control of his destiny without him even looking like he knows anything about it. Verse 7 will continue, and we'll close with this. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I meet the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And there's this layers of evil, characters at their worst, in the scheming satanic providence who really feel that they hold Jesus' destiny within their hateful hands. And it seems that all of these forces are right against Jesus, uh, that they really have this upper hand. But here it is in these verses that we have this very uh, quiet reminder 
of who it is that is ultimately in control, even when it seems like he is not in control. You know, some commentators uh, estimate that there's anywhere between several hundreds of thousands of people up to two million. They may flood into Jerusalem during the Passover season. I mean, this was a pilgrimage time. All Jewish people from all over the area would come to Jerusalem for this. Rome would put more guards there just to make sure things are kept in order. And so this place is packed. And Jesus is saying, when you've entered into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. I mean, that's not exactly GPS. So I just walk in the city. There's thousands upon thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. And I'm just going to run into one guy carrying one water jar. Is that really all the directions we're going to get? I mean, try walking down this trip in Waikiki at the height of tourist season with thousands there and just trying to find one person, no cell phones allowed. Is that all the directions we're going to get to identify? Yeah, that's it. But then you follow him. He's going to enter into a house. You don't have the address, but there's going to be the master of the house in there. And you tell him this, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I made the Passover with my disciples? Again, no names, no addresses, no descriptions other than the guy with the water jar. And this is someone they've never met. And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare the Passover there. That's it. And so these disciples are looking at each other. Well, let's go do it then. And then what happens? They went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I mean, brothers and sisters, who is ultimately in control of all things? Who is ultimately the one that we can put our full trust in? even when it looks like he is not in control. You know, we can often uh, try and interpret things way too quickly and with way too little information before God is even done with the story. Well, the authorities are against him. Judas is going to betray him. We couldn't have foreseen that. Satan's involved now. I mean, Jesus is going to die because of all of this. Do you really think that a handful of temple officials, one traitor, and an ex-angel together have the power to put the Son of God upon the cross? No one has the power to put Jesus upon the cross but the Lord himself. Acts 4, 27, 28, speaking about the death of Christ, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Whose hand put Jesus on that cross? The Lord Whose plan was it? God's. Who is in control here? Who has always been in control? I mean, what did Luke alert us to even when he called Judas to follow him? Luke 6, 13 and onward. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. And the list of the name goes, Simon, Peter, Andrew, etc., etc. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Who chose Judas? Jesus. Jesus hand-selected Judas, knowing that he would betray him. Uh, there's literally nothing that will occur outside the plan and providence of God. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Listen to John MacArthur. By the way, the nails didn't kill him, the spear didn't kill him, the crown of thorns didn't kill him, the, the nakedness didn't kill him, and the blood lost didn't kill him. God took his life because he was God's lamb. Christ died for God to be a satisfactory atonement for sin. 
and to satisfy the justice of God so that God could forgive all those whose sins have now been paid for. Now, here's the craziest thing, I think. I mean, even the devil saying himself, it's not this tug of war that, that we often think of between good and evil and between the devil and God, and it's just this hair of difference between them. I hope he smarts him this time. No, even Satan here is being used by God for God. Even when Satan thinks, I'm destroying God, the devil at his worst, we're going to crucify the son, we're going to use religious leadership to make it sting more. You know what? Let's grab one of the 12. I know he loves money. I know it. I can enter into him and lead him even further to sell out the son of God. Let's make it for 30 coins. I mean, this is Satan at his worst to accomplish the death of his son, and yet even at his worst, God is using Satan to accomplish our salvation by his death for the sins of the world. This is the eternal plan of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. Not Satan. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, what does this mean? It means that we can't always trust our perception of things. And we can't judge God's love and faithfulness to us with just what our nearsighted eyes can see in our very short-sighted timeline. We can so often try and interpret things too quickly and with way too little information before God has even done if the worst thing that could have ever happened and the worst betrayal that could have ever happened is the best thing that could have ever happened to us, I mean, what does that mean for all the things he's currently working out in our own lives, whether we can see it clearly or not? There are things God's not giving to you that you beg for. There are things that you beg never to have that he is giving to you. Don't judge God's faithfulness by that. Judge God's faithfulness by Jesus Christ upon the cross, that he loves you. And from that point onward, we can judge everything that comes our way by that very love. We can trust in the Lord more than we can trust in money. We can have confidence in him more so than we have confidence in people's opinions of us. Look to Jesus Christ. You think it didn't hurt him when you got betrayed? It did. You think it didn't hurt him when you got all these pains for us in our salvation. You can trust him when things are dark. You can trust him when things are rough because God is in control, loving control of all things for our good. Would you please close with me in prayer? Oh, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would impress the truth of this word into our hearts. You know, we can hear uh, really uh, clear and amazing truth from your word and walk out these doors and forget it the moment after. We can see the glory of Jesus Christ and, and your love for us and, and be so forgetful of it when we stub our toe on the corner of the bed. Lord, help us in our weakness. By your grace and mercy, would you give us strength to behold Jesus Christ in his splendor and give us the kind of faith in you where even if all we had was you and nothing else, not even a single silver coin, we feel secure because of how much we believe you. Give us this kind of belief. Give us this kind of trust. Give us this kind of joy. Give us this kind of confidence. 
in who you are for us in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.